welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Happy New Year! Can't believe it's 2023. But then I think I've thought that every year since 2018. And here we remain. May this year, of course, be better than the last. And if the first three cases this week are any indication, well, that's something for non-citizens. The cloud of Title 42 notwithstanding. 2023, here we come. Here we are. Before getting to the cases, I wanted to talk a bit about Capital Good Fund. Millions of families seeking to improve their immigration status face financial barriers due to the high cost of legal services. Nonprofit Capital Good Fund is working to make these resources available to all, especially those who would not otherwise qualify for traditional loans. Certified CDFI Capital Good Fund is partnering with attorneys to provide the financial services that families need. They offer affordable financing with no closing fees or down payments for those working with attorneys to move their case forward and to get attorneys out of the accounts receivable business. To learn more about the program, email immigration at goodfund.us or call 866-584-3651 and tell them who sent you. Kicking off the episode, Alvarez Gomez v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on December 28, 2022. This case is about mental health and Convention Against Torture protection. Mr. Alvarez Gomez has been in the United States for many years. He, quote, has serious cognitive impairments and while living in El Salvador was recruited by gang members who attacked and threatened him when he refused to join the gang, end quote. He was also convicted of illegal possession of a firearm under 18 U.S.C. Section 922 G5A in 2020, and it appears that DHS itself 
ordered him expeditiously removed based on a finding, made by DHS itself, that the conviction matched the definition of an aggravated felony at INA section 11A43E. And the immigration statute actually allows this. In a surprisingly broad class of circumstances, DHS can avoid removal proceedings before an immigration judge altogether and issue an expedited order of removal against a non-citizen. Not so extraordinary here because that aggravated felony provision, INA section 11A43E, literally cites back to the criminal conviction statute, section 922G5, among other statutes. But still, begs for due process concerns in certain cases. DHS, the same entity that just ordered Mr. Alvarez Gomez removed, then concluded that his fear of return to El Salvador was not reasonable. But when challenged before an immigration judge, an IJ disagreed, and Mr. Alvarez Gomez was placed in withholding only proceedings so that he could bring his claimed fear. As the basis for his fear, he asserted the gang recruitment stuff, and additionally, harms based on his membership and the particular social groups that included, quote, persons with disabilities, persons with mental or cognitive disabilities, or persons with disabilities who are known witnesses of gang criminal activity and or reported gang criminal activity to police, end quote. Looks like he was detained, and either him or someone on his behalf requested a competency hearing in immigration court under matter of MAM, the BIA's seminal decision on mental health from 2011. If deemed to have significant mental health issues, the IJ would then need to institute adequate safeguards to ensure the fundamental fairness of proceedings, including, but not necessarily limited to, assigning an attorney to represent Mr. Alvarez Gomez at no cost to Mr. Alvarez Gomez. And indeed, Mr. Alvarez Gomez cannot, quote, read or write, has memory comprehension and concentration issues, and did not progress past the first grade in school. An evaluation showed that Mr. Alvarez Gomez has severe cognitive impairment with an IQ of 55, which places him in the lowest 0.1 percentile, end quote. Recall, though, he managed to get a firearm in the United States. Deemed not competent by the IJ, safeguards were ordered. And check out these safeguards ordered by the IJ, quote, representation by counsel, use of leading questions, taking breaks, and participation by his mother to help prepare the case and communicate with Mr. Alvarez Gomez throughout the proceedings, end quote. The world of safeguards really is the IJ's oyster. And then taking competency into account, the IJ found Mr. Alvarez Gomez credible, Quote, despite his inability to recall some details during his testimony and some inconsistencies in the record, end quote. Dare I say another appropriate safeguard under matter of ma'am for counsels to argue in such cases? Regarding his story, it looks like Mr. Alvarez Gomez was abused terribly by his father as a child, including repeated head injuries that may have led to his current mental state. As a young man, he refused gang demands to join and they beat him savagely, breaking his nose and leaving scars. He fled to Guatemala from El Salvador, but they sought him out there too, so he fled to the U.S. in 2016 to be with his mother. In El Salvador, the gang has since told his sister, who remains in that country, that the gang is waiting for his return. Also, the gang knows about his mental health issues. Quote, the gang members called Mr. Alvarez Gomez crazy in threatening messages and said they wanted a crazy person to join the gang because he could commit even worse acts than any of them could. End quote. 
But ultimately, the IJ saw all of it as just criminal activity, not on account of a particular social group. But the IJ held that there was nowhere in El Salvador that Mr. Alvarez Gomez could relocate to, and that the Salvadoran government would acquiesce to future gang torture. As evidence, for example, by the fact that previously, quote, police refused to investigate a prior gang attack and their collusion with the gang, end quote. So the IJ granted protection under the Convention Against Torture. Mr. Alvarez Gomez gets to stay. Until DHS appealed, and the BIA overturned the IJ on cat protection. And now we're at the Eighth Circuit. As an initial matter, the Eighth Circuit affirmed the IJ and the BIA on withholding of removal denial. And actually, like the Eleventh Circuit last week, the Eighth Circuit held that INA Section 242A2C barred it from reviewing factual challenges to the denial of withholding because Mr. Alvarez Gomez had been convicted of that aggravated felony. What about Nisrala, I say? What about Nisrala? Not even mentioned on the jurisdiction discussion, except briefly in a footnote. Bah humbug again. Withholding of removal, denied summarily. But not cat protection. To the Eighth Circuit, quote, Upon careful review, we conclude the reasons offered for rejecting the IJ's findings are insufficient to satisfy a reasonable mind that the IJ clearly erred, end quote. In layman's terms, the BIA went too far. For example, the BIA conceded that at least one of the attacks against Mr. Alvarez Gomez was really serious, and the BIA, quote, offers no explanation why this was not inflicted with the acquiescence of public officials, end quote. Plus, said the court, gang violence, gang retaliation, and law enforcement not preventing at all are well-known things to occur in El Salvador. Even under the Attorney General's own harsh, if I recall, matter of RAF decision from 2020, the fact that, quote, the harm was inflicted on Mr. Alvarez Gomez specifically to cause pain is a significant fact supporting a finding of torture, end quote. Similarly, the BIA's overturning of the IJ on relocation was not reasonable to the Eighth Circuit, as the BIA didn't explain why the IJ was wrong to find that El Salvador, quote, is small and densely populated, and gangs operate throughout the country, making travel impossible for most people, end quote. Rather, as often occurs, quote, the BIA merely observed that Mr. Alvarez Gomez had not tried to relocate within El Salvador, end quote doesn't answer the question to the Eighth Circuit, especially as the gang found him in Guatemala, a whole different country. The Eighth Circuit notes some other stuff that the BIA did wrong and remanded. That included, by the way, the BIA's complete failure to address country condition reports relied upon by the IJ that showed that Mr. Alvarez Gomez faces, quote, a particularized risk of torture in El Salvador because of his cognitive disabilities, end quote. So it's all going back to the BIA with some strong reasons to affirm the IJ. Judge Loken dissented on the cat remand portion. And here's just a bit more on government acquiescence. Don't forget how low a factual showing is required to satisfy the government acquiescence prong for cat protection. Quote, the relevant perspective for government acquiescence to torture is not limited to upper-level policymaking, so the Salvadoran government's commitment to reduce gang violence standing alone does not render the IJ's conclusion clearly erroneous, end quote. 
That is, rephrased, even under Attorney General Barr's own decision in matter of OFAS episode 12, it's not really dispositive whether or not a country is committed to reducing gang violence, at least for cat purposes, because acquiescence only requires any government official, including, quote, low-level officials, even if their actions are in contravention of national policy, end quote. And that is Alvarez Gomez v. Garland. Sticking with the Eighth Circuit, because why not? United States v. Myers, published by the Eighth Circuit on December 29th, 2022. It's a sentence enhancement case. Why am I summarizing it? Because it's all about cocaine isomers. Summarized. Mr. Myers' sentence of imprisonment for his federal conviction gets increased by a lot of months if his prior Missouri conviction from the year 2003 under Missouri Revised Statute Section 195.211 is what the Armed Career Criminal Act, or ACCA, calls a serious drug offense. Seems like the conviction might be. After all, he was convicted for the sale of cocaine. But at the time of his Missouri conviction in 2003, quote, Missouri law defined cocaine as encompassing its isomers without limiting the definition of isomer to optical and geometric isomers as the federal statute did, end quote. Meaning that Missouri's definition of cocaine was categorically broader than the federal definition in 2003. Gotta get back to that, of course. We're talking categorical approach. Both criminal immigration law and the ACCA sentence enhancement use the approach and only permit immigration or sentence enhancement consequences if there is a match between the state conviction and the federal offense. Here the state conviction is Missouri sale of cocaine from 2003, and the federal offense is a serious drug offense under the ACCA. But it would be the same analysis for, say, a removability provision that is tethered back, just like the ACCA, to the Federal Controlled Substance Act, or CSA. That's what defines federal drugs. If the state Missouri drug isn't in the federal CSA, you can't have federal consequences, be them immigration or federal sentence enhancement. Here, the argument is that Missouri criminalized more cocaine isomers than did the federal government in 2003. Missouri criminalized more cocaine than the feds. The categorical approach doesn't care whether or not Mr. Myers actually possessed or tried to sell those isomers. The inquiry is all about the two statutes, state and federal, and what they criminalized. Now, I'm no chemist. Forget what you've heard. But apparently Missouri criminalized all types of cocaine isomers in 2003, which encompasses, quote, any one of a number of isomeric compounds, end quote. The federal government, in contrast, only criminalized in the CSA, quote, optical and geometric isomers, but not positional isomers, end quote. I don't know what that means, but I don't have to. Under the text of the statutes, Missouri criminalized more cocaine than did the feds. That makes Missouri's statute overbroad. Quote, Moreover, Missouri courts have interpreted the Missouri drug schedule as making all isomers of cocaine illegal, end quote, apparently including positional isomers. Interesting. Even the realistic probability test appears satisfied as to Missouri cocaine isomers. 
Not going to go down that rabbit hole, but it's a fun rabbit hole. To the Eighth Circuit, it didn't matter that positional isomers, the overbroad isomers, might not actually exist in the illegal cocaine trade in Missouri. Quote, absent ambiguity, we are bound to give effect to the intent reflected in the statute's plain language and cannot resort to other means of interpretation. End quote. The inquiry ends, says the court, explicitly. Judge Loken dissented again. Look at the Eighth Circuit go. I know a couple of Sharma Crawfords who might be interested. I bet they already know. And so just to summarize... For those of you following along with this crazy and complicated dispute, as I read the landscape, the Seventh and the Eighth Circuit have now, to similar degrees, completely agreed with the isomer argument and are willing to find methamphetamine and cocaine overbroad, respectively. That's Indiana methamphetamine in the Seventh and Missouri cocaine in the Eighth, at least as applied to the definitions of those drugs used in the states during the years in dispute in those cases. Not only that, but the 11th Circuit appears totally on board with the isomer argument, provided that you can convince the 11th Circuit that the isomer actually exists in the real world. The 5th Circuit, on the other hand, doesn't give a hoot unless you can prove to the 5th Circuit that the state in question actually prosecutes the isomer. Oh, and by the way, Florida marijuana is totally overbroad too, at least in the 11th Circuit and the 8th. Not because of isomers, but because of Florida marijuana's many seeds, stalks, and stems. And to the Ninth Circuit, at least some panels, the court seems quite open to arguments that marijuana-type crimes, even when not overbroad, are not morally turpitudinous because of changing societal values towards marijuana. Just writing all that out, it sounds like I know a whole lot about drugs in the U.S. Entirely from these cases, people. Entirely from the cases. For more on all this, check out my article in John Kasravi's Immigration Lawyer Toolbox magazine, published in December 2022. And that is United States v. Myers. Moving on, Perez Portillo v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on December 30th, 2022. This case is about in absentia motions to reopen. But not the new deficient notice to appear kind. No, this is a classic no-notice motion to reopen. Miss Perez Portillo and her minor daughter are from El Salvador. They entered the United States without authorization in 2019, and Miss Perez Portillo was actually eight months pregnant at the time, meaning that her second child, now four years old, is a U.S. citizen. Before all that, three days after her arrival in the U.S. to be exact, DHS served Miss Perez Portillo and apparently her minor daughter with a notice to appear that did indeed have the date, time, and location of their first hearing, a February 27, 2020 hearing. DHS mailed that notice to Ms. Perez Portillo at the address that she provided to DHS upon her apprehension. But then, 10 days later, the immigration court mailed Ms. Perez Portillo a notice of hearing with a new date for a new hearing, December 3, 2019. Ms. Perez Portillo didn't show up to that new hearing, and she would later claim that she never received the court's notice. She was ordered removed in absentia. 
She received that order of removal, though, and two days after receiving the notice, well before the date of when her first hearing was supposed to be, she went to the court by herself to ask what she could do about the removal order. Two days after that, she filed a one-page motion to reopen by herself, claiming that she hadn't received the notice of hearing, changing the court date. The motion also states that, quote, she feared returning to her country and that she had a U.S. citizen child who was sick and depends on her, end quote. The immigration judge nevertheless denied the motion. Citing to the BIA's decision in a matter of GYR, the IJ held that there exists a rebuttable presumption that court notices are properly delivered to non-citizens. And so, Ms. Perez Botillo is charged with having notice of her hearing as a matter of law. Implicit in that holding is that Ms. Perez Portillo had not rebutted the presumption of proper receipt of her hearing notice. The BIA affirmed. But here's the thing, said the Ninth Circuit. Ms. Perez Portillo said that she didn't receive the court's notice of hearing, and neither the IJ nor the BIA ever said anything about whether Ms. Perez Portillo was a credible person, or whether her statement of non-receipt was credible. And after all, the presumption of delivery is weaker now post-1997 that DHS and the immigration courts aren't sending their documents by certified mail, said the court. And to be fair, the BIA has said that as well in its precedent. In the Ninth Circuit, whether a non-citizen has, quote, produced sufficient evidence to overcome the presumption of service by regular mail is practical and commonsensical rather than rigidly formulaic and that in many cases the only proof may be the individual statement as well as circumstantial evidence, end quote. Even the BIA has a similar rule from its 2008 decision, Matter of MRA, a decision that also finds quite significant a, quote, respondent's due diligence in promptly seeking to redress the situation by obtaining counsel and requesting reopening of the proceedings, end quote, which is, of course, pretty much what happened here. That fact, in light of the other circumstantial evidence of non-delivery in this case, and the fact that it was EYR itself that advanced Ms. Perez-Portillo's hearing in the first place, resulted in a remand to, at a minimum, assess Ms. Perez-Portillo's credibility. Seems like the IJ needs to have a hearing on that issue, right? Which kind of would then moot the substance of the dispute over whether Ms. Perez-Portillo should be ordered removed for not appearing for a hearing. Just saying. No affidavit submitted by Ms. Perez Portillo, by the way, but neither the Ninth Circuit nor matter of MRA necessarily requires one, especially where, like here, the non-citizen is pro se. Pretty strong holding, quote, unless the IJ found Ms. Perez Portillo not credible based on additional filings or after a hearing, her statements of non-receipt should have persuasive weight, end quote. So congratulations, Frank P. Sprouls for petitioner. And to the oil attorney as well for what was surely a well-done argument, and who a few years ago authored an excellent Cuban Adjustment Act overview and practice advisory in EOIR's since-discontinued Immigration Law Advisor publication, a writing that I've relied upon more than once. And this all brings to mind something that I find interesting. Not really an issue here because Ms. Perez Portillo conceded that she received the NTA by mail. However, the immigration statute actually requires that, quote, a written notice to appear be given in person to the non-citizen, or if personal service is not practicable through service by mail to the non-citizen or to the non-citizen's council of record, if any, end quote. To me, 
That seems quite clear that DHS must personally serve an MTA upon a non-citizen. And if they dare not, they need to prove that it was not practicable to do so. I'm not aware of this ever being argued, I'm sure it is sometimes, but I'm also not aware of a published decision on the issue. But with DHS always mailing these NTAs all over the place, might the time be right to start putting them to their personal service burden? Or at least have DHS explain why they can avoid the plain statutory text on case-by-case bases? We all know how important the Supreme Court deems the NTA statutory text, after all. And that is Perez Portillo v. Garland. Concluding with two decisions from the First Circuit. First, Robinson v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on December 28, 2022. This is a fairly short case on derivative citizenship. Mr. Robinson was born in Jamaica and, it appears, was admitted to the U.S. as an LPR when he was 12 years old in 1994. He didn't naturalize as he could have for many years, and in 2018 he was convicted of possession with the intent to distribute cocaine. Everyone in this case agrees that the conviction is an aggravated felony drug trafficking offense, meaning that Mr. Robinson loses his green card. The thing is that according to Mr. Robinson, his mother naturalized in 1998 or 1999. That would appear to make Mr. Robinson potentially a citizen because he was 16 or 17 years old at the time. More research needed there, but definitely a claim. The problem is that a Jamaican birth certificate lists another person as his mother, and DHS submitted that birth certificate. Faced with that birth certificate and through counsel, he gave up his derivative citizenship argument before the IJ, and he accepted an order of removal. But then Mr. Robinson, by himself without an attorney, appealed to the BIA and brought up the derivative citizenship claim again. And this time, and I have no idea how, he presented, quote, a different birth certificate that he obtained from the Jamaican embassy, listing his mother, end quote, as the woman who he thought was his mother and said was his mother the whole time, and who became a citizen in 1998 or 1999. But the BIA dismissed the appeal, because there was no appeal, because Mr. Robinson accepted an order of removal below. Maybe a motion to reopen would be more appropriate there. But I mean, he can't deport a U.S. citizen, and if the circuit sees a legitimate claim to citizenship, it generally must remand to a district court judge for adjudication. No showing here, though, said the First Circuit. Even assuming that naturalized woman was indeed Mr. Robinson's mother, said the court, he couldn't satisfy the derivative citizenship statute then in effect. As always, the governing statute is the one that applied at the time of the potential naturalization or derivative citizenship here, 1998 or 1999. And at that time, the statute, which is since repealed INA Section 321A, provided citizenship for people like Mr. Robinson born abroad if either of these three things happened while the child is under the age of 18. 1. The naturalization of both parents. 2. The naturalization of the surviving parent if one of the parents is deceased or three, the naturalization of the parent having legal custody of the child when there has been a legal separation of the parents, or the naturalization of the mother if the child was born out of wedlock and the paternity of the child has not been established by legitimation. That is a mouthful. Good thing it's been repealed. 
and unfortunately for Mr. Robinson, none of those things happened here. Again, assuming that it is his mom, said the court. Mr. Robinson's father unquestionably didn't naturalize until he was an adult, so number one, the naturalization of both parents, is out the window. Nor was Mr. Robinson's father deceased when his mom naturalized, so option two is out. Finally, Mr. Robinson didn't present evidence that his married parents were separated at the time of his mother's naturalization, or alternatively that he was born out of wedlock and that his paternity, that is, who his father was, had not been established or that he hadn't been legitimized by his father. Pretty wild rules as always, derivative citizenship. It's gotten a bit better. But this is what applied in 1999, and it was unmet here, so Mr. Robinson loses his case. And that is Robinson v. Garland. Concluding as we must, we have Jimenez Portillo v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on December 27, 2022. This case is about asylum and nexus. The four petitioners in this case are a family of asylum seekers from El Salvador, deemed credible by the immigration judge who fear the Mara 18 criminal enterprise that de facto rules much of El Salvador. The lead petitioner in this case, the husband, operated a small store in Mara 18 territory, and one day, gang members demanded that he hide weapons for them. He refused, and they beat him up really bad. Later that year, in 2015, the same gang members held him up at gunpoint, saying that they had orders to murder him, in addition to, quote, the bitch that is my wife and my brother, end quote. After all, testified the lead petitioner, his wife had refused to date the lead gang member years prior, leading to her own beating and death threat. The petitioners reported all of this to the Salvadoran police and fled to the U.S. in 2015. Shortly after that, the lead petitioner's grandmother, who was then operating the store, was murdered after being shot 15 or 16 times. And just so everyone knows from the start here, the credible asylum seekers are going to lose this case. And like I mentioned at the top, it's going to be on Nexus. The petitioners, which were a husband, wife, and two adult brothers, asserted that they were persecuted and feared persecution on account of their membership in their family group which, to be clear, quote, can be sufficiently permanent and distinct characteristics to serve as the linchpin for a protected social group within the purview of the asylum laws, end quote. But to the IJ and the BIA, the petitioners were targeted simply for criminal reasons and not because of their family ties, an insufficient reason to fear death under U.S. immigration law. Got to be on account of the non-citizen's race, religion, nationality, membership on a particular social group, or political opinion to qualify for asylum or withholding of removal. But for asylum, a protected ground need only be one central reason for the persecution suffered or feared. Immigration law, quote, clearly contemplates the possibility that multiple motivations can exist, and that the presence of a non-protected motivation does not render an asylum seeker ineligible for refugee status. End quote. But to the First Circuit, the IJ and the BIA, at least putting their decisions together, did just that. The agency considered all the reasons for the death threats and the grandma's execution, and found that family wasn't at least one central reason. 
That then brings us to the meat of the matter. Were the IJ and the BIA wrong to conclude that family wasn't at least one central reason for the persecution that this family of four, plus their grandmother, suffered? Well, deemed a question of fact by the panel, rather than a mixed question of law and fact, the court believed that heavy deference to the IJ and the BIA was required. And applying that heavy deference to the court, the fact that the threats were tethered to the husband's refusal to store guns made it reasonable to find that the reason for the beating, death threats, and grandma execution were criminally motivated rather than familial. After all, implied the court, had the family just agreed to commit crimes and collude with Mara 18, they would have been safe. Quote, The gang targeted Mr. Jimenez Portillo because he refused to assist their criminal enterprise. End quote. Not protected. Plus, said all tribunals involved, as they fled to the U.S. at the time, the petitioners didn't know for sure who had shot their grandmother in the store 15 times. That all lost the case for the petitioners. Some final notes. As I mentioned, the immigration judge denied finding that family wasn't one central reason for the persecution that the family had suffered. No mention about nexus for withholding of removal, though, because it appears the petitioners didn't challenge the withholding of removal denial before the First Circuit. But maybe they should have. Because I believe it remains an open question to the first whether the withholding of removal nexus requirement requires that the protected ground be one central reason or the lesser a reason standard employed by at least two circuits. For the next case in the first. Finally and of note, it's a very well-written decision if you are listening to some of those quotes, but it also uses the words tenebrous and plinth, words I had never heard before and had to look up, and which I will now use as appropriate going forward. And I will not tell you what they mean, thereby forcing you to look it up too. And if you write to me over email and tell me that you knew both words without looking them up, well, I will know that I received an email from a liar. And that is Jimenez Portillo v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Immigration Review.